You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Let's have prayer. Father in heaven, we come and we thank you for our Lord Jesus and our perfect Savior, the perfect atonement for our sins. Pray, God, if there's anyone here this morning, any backsliders, they'd be restored, and any lost sinners, they'd come to Christ, and for your people to feast upon the body and blood of Jesus who was offered up for our sins, that we would be strengthened for having gathered, and you would guide the hearing and the preaching of your word by your power. In Christ's name, amen. So we're at the crucifixion, we followed this whole account through Gethsemane to the show trial before the Sanhedrin, the 71 top men of Israel who tried Jesus, and then we saw him taken through the streets to Pilate, where he was put before thousands of people, and they demanded that he be crucified and wanted to have Barabbas released. We've seen the torture at the hands of the soldiers, the mocking scoffing, and just how our Lord was passed um, from hand to hand that really brutalized him. Last week, we noted that his suffering was inflicted at the hands of, of wicked men, and today we, we note, although the wicked men are certainly involved in today's text, the predominant theme is that it is our good God who punishes Christ in this text, on behalf of our sins. You can see Christ died one death, but it wasn't, it was a death like no other death. He really died 10,000 times 10,000 deaths in that one death because he died the death of everyone who believes. And so his crucifixion atoned for the sin of his elect. And in that death of Christ, there were many deaths. Deaths that each one of us have received because of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. It's a death on our behalf. So all of our sins are forgiven. Before I get into this, as I talk about the death on our behalf, and we prepare through the sermon to eat and drink of the Lord's Supper, I want to invite you to the free grace of Jesus Christ. Because when we come to the Lord's Supper at the end of the sermon, I'm I'm going to basically draw a line in the sand and say if you're walking with Christ, if you're in Christ, this is for you. Come participate and receive this assurance of pardon through the bread and the cup. But if you're not in Christ, I'm going to say don't come because this isn't for you, you're not saved. But why, why not believe right now? 
and entrust yourself to Christ at this moment in time. If you've backslidden, come. Come back. The door's open. His arms are stretched out for you to receive you into His love. And if you're far, far, far in sin, leave the entanglement of sin. Christ will set you free. So come to our Savior now and experience this great love so you do not need to be excluded from the table of our Lord. But as we look at this outline, it's I've really there's five movements in the text. We'll see Christ was judged, Christ was forsaken. We see Christ had faith, Christ was ridiculed, Christ died, just all five points that will help you know where we are in the sermon. His judgment, his forsakenness, his faith, him being ridiculed in his death. And as I set up for this, I wanted to read a quote from John Bunyan that I found particularly touching as it pertains to the atonement of Jesus Christ and what I'm discussing this morning, this afternoon now. Bunyan said this, truthfully, he wrestled with justice that thou mightest have rest. He wept and mourned that thou mightest have, mightest laugh and rejoice. He was betrayed that thou mightest go free, was apprehended that thou mightest escape. He was condemned that thou mightest be justified and was killed that thou mightest live. He wore a crown of thorns that thou mightest wear a crown of glory and was nailed to the cross with his arms wide open to show with what freeness all his merits shall be bestowed on the coming soul, and how heartily he will receive it into his bosom. Won't you come with his, to the one whose arms were stretched out on the cross for you? His arms weren't closed on the cross, his arms were stretched out on the cross. To symbolize to you that he invites you to come, and he'll receive you into his love. But let's look at this judgment that Christ was subjected to as our first point this morning. Christ was judged. Verse 45 tells us that now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Now the sixth hour would have been about noon, and the ninth hour would have been about 3 p.m. then. So there's three hours of Black darkness on the earth at this point. During the time of day when it is brightest. So at the brightest time of day, it's turned to darkness. This is some type of miracle of God to tell us what's going on. It represented the judgment of God, which I'll explain in a moment, but... We should note that there was a Roman historians who have been quoted in antiquity is noting the darkness that extended even over Rome at this time. Tertullian said that the Roman historians recorded this darkness as did origin in the third century, and there were claims that it was further even recorded in Egypt, well beyond the borders of Judea. And so this was extensive darkness. The 
The heavens were shaking at this point in time. John Trapp so well captures, he said, the sun hid his hand in a mantle of black. It's a shame to behold those base indignities done to the son of righteousness by the sons of men. So aghast and embarrassed by how horrendously the son of God was being treated, the sun in the heavens hides at high noon, darkness at noon. And some would say, would like to think that this might have been a, some type of solar eclipse with the moon going in between the earth and the sun, but that would have been impossible because this was a full moon at this time of year. And so that just, that, that wouldn't have worked. And beyond that, you've never seen a solar eclipse, I don't think, the last three hours. So this is something that was providentially arranged by God and because we have something significant and substantial spiritual happening, that the skies are shaking, the heavens are shaking. And th- this is the way it goes in, in the Bible. It's not just a literary device. If you read a novel or if you watch a movie, you'll see that quite often when something bad is happening or something bad is about to happen, it gets dark. It's raining, there's a thunderstorm, it's nighttime. To demonstrate is a literary device that there's dark, that something bad's happening. Well, that's not just a literary device. It's actually the way Scripture records significant events. Because this is the way that God works. When things that are, things are going on that are significant and deeply spiritual and earth-shaking, the heavens themselves are rattled. That's precisely what we're seeing at this moment. God himself, through how the heavens are operating, is telling the world something. He's warning them. Matthew Henry said, The indignities done to our Lord Jesus made the heavens astonished and horribly afraid and even put them into disorder and confusion. Such wickedness as this The sun never saw before and therefore withdrew. And this makes sense to us because at the birth of Christ in the evening time, there was a great light that led the wise men to Jerusalem from the east. And so again, there was some type of phenomenon in the heavens that the Lord created. A brightness shining in darkness to declare that the Lord was born. Well, here we have a darkness that cancels out the brightness to declare that our Lord is dying at the end of his life, at his death. And this darkness covers the land between the sixth and the ninth hour. So between noon, the Hebrews recorded time differently. Between noon and three o'clock in the afternoon, when it should have been the brightest, it was the darkest. And this would have been the time that they would have been roasting their Passover lambs, the uh, Jerusalem Jews. I mean, if you're going to have a dinner in the evening or the late afternoon and you have a large roast to put in the oven, you're going to start around noontime. And you're going to let your roast, you know, just kind of 
take in all the heat, so hopefully it's cooked right through by the time your family sits down for a meal. And the Passover lamb was the lamb that was sacrificed, first time it sacrificed was at the release of the Jews from Egypt into freedom. And it was to be sacrificed every year for every family ever since. And so this was the time that it was roasting. And just as the lamb was roasting in the oven to declare that the Jews had been freed from Egypt, Christ himself was roasting under the hot wrath of God on the cross so that we might be released from our sins and our sins might be atoned for. Roasting right through to his soul on this cross in this black darkness. And the darkness, no doubt, represented the judgment of God. This is how it goes in Scripture. Very often, darkness will represent the judgment of God in Scripture. And I'll give you a few examples. So, for example, Joel chapter 2, verse 30 records, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So judgment is declared by darkness, the darkening of the sun. Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through 20 says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why should you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, it went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? It's judgment. Darkness is indicating that judgment has come. Zephaniah 1 verse 15 says, A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Again, darkness indicating that judgment has come. And so what is happening in Christ is being declared by the darkening of the noon sky. When the day should have been the brightest, it became a darkness that you could not imagine. And this was a sign of judgment. And this is the way it is. is, is we like to think that the spiritual doesn't affect the physical and the physical doesn't affect the spiritual, but it never works that way. The spiritual affects the physical and the physical affects the spiritual because the Lord God built them both. We shouldn't be separating them as terribly distinct things in our minds because both are always at play. And the spiritual affects the physical. And so when you have something that is this significant as far as world history, all of history has been pointing to the cross to this point. And since it, all of history points back to the cross. Everything points to the cross. This is the pivotal point of human history. All of it balances here. And so this moment where Christ is being crucified and he's absorbing the full judgment of God towards our sin is the moment that darkness comes over the earth. And that's significant because it is what happens when there is great upheaval, is the heavens themselves are shaken. It only makes sense 
to sign a judgment. I want to make a little wee application that I don't want us to focus on too much because there's too many more weighty matters at play in our text here. But I want to make this application and then just leave it there and maybe forget about it till later. Shouldn't preoccupy us too much, but the, the changing of the heavens or the upheaval of the heavens or the environment by the ancients was interpreted to mean that something significant is happening on a spiritual basis or spiritually speaking. And there's a very quick application because there's so many right now that are trying to talk to us about climate change. And if there is such a thing as climate change, not saying there is, perhaps there is, perhaps there isn't. But if there is, that should not cause us to run to the government for salvation. It should cause us to cry out to mercy, for mercy to God for mercy. That's what it should do. Because it tells us if, if things are changing to the degree that they're warning that they're going to change, then this should be a call to repentance because it tells us that there are spiritual forces at play. That's what climate change should call us to do. But it's just like is, is, the, is the darkness covered the earth and there was this phenomenon of darkness at noon and what's happening is there's darkness at noon here is there's still people carrying on and laughing and mocking Jesus Christ with no in-tuneness into the spiritual matters at hand. The, 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 the cross of Christ Christ is crucified right in front of them. They're watching all the sins of the world, of God's people being poured into Christ at that moment. And Him suffering on the cross as our atonement, completely oblivious to the spiritual significance, despite the fact that it's darkness at noon, and they still carry on laughing, mocking, berating Jesus Christ, which is really, as true as that was, it's a parable of our own generation. Instead of heeding the warnings if there are things being altered in our climate, they carry on just as they are. And in the sin that they are, mocking the Lord and deriding His church. But this is a sign of judgment, this darkness at noon. And not only do we have here the judgment, Christ being judged, but beyond that, we have Christ being forsaken. Him being forsaken. So there was, there was judgment in Christ for our sins. This was a sign that Israel was about to be judged or was being judged because they've been handed over to their own desires and they were crucifying their king. Like God sends them a king, perfect king, and what do they do? They crucify him. But, but beyond that, we're being told here that there is Christ is being forsaken of God. At this moment, there is a forsakenness that takes place. Let me read what John Gill said about this. Not only the sun and the firmament hid its face from him, and he was forsaken by his friends and disciples, but even left by his God. You could imagine, tried. Forsaken by his friends, forsaken by his disciples, forsaken by his people. Forsaken by the Son itself, the Lord, God Himself forsakes Jesus Christ. 
and abandons him. Look at verse 46. About the ninth hour. So what, when it says about the ninth hour, what's that telling us? Well, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness. So just moving into the ninth hour is where this text starts. So it, it seems to me that as the text starts in the ninth hour, is going into the ninth hour, that it's right at the ninth hour that the Lord Jesus gives up his ghost, and then the lights are turned on again. This is significant. But we're moving into the ninth hour. It's about the ninth hour. Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani is the Aramaic, is the common talk of the day, which is what Jesus cried out in. And then it's translated because our New Testaments are in Greek. It first records his words in Aramaic and then translates them into Greek, which we have here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Translated for us in English in our English Bibles. But this whole idea of forsakenness or abandonment is to leave in the lurch. And it's quoting, Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. And Psalm 22 has been quoted or referenced multiple times in the account of the crucifixion. It is the Psalm of the cross, I preached it at Easter, if you remember. Moving into the ninth hour, it's at this time that light is looking to break, and I suspect that, as I noted, Jesus gave up his ghost in verse 50, just as the lights were being turned on. But God causes to the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. Jesus told us this. The sun shines and the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Well, in this very moment of the atonement, God caused the sun to cease shining on the just and the unjust. Because the one man who was just became unjust, because God counted our sins to him. But he declares himself forsaken of God. Now, why would he do that? What's going on here that would prompt Jesus to declare himself forsaken of God? Well, he's been forsaken by God into the hands of his enemies. So it appears that his enemies are getting the best of him. His soul is being roasted in the inferno of God's wrath. That's going on. But in the forsakenness, I think most terrible probably is the fact that God withdrew any comfort from him. There, there was no comfort from God for Christ in his suffering on the cross. His withdrawal was the withdrawal of, the God, of God's goodness. Anything that is good in God was removed from Christ, or good in God's presence was removed from Christ. His blessings of goodness were not there on the cross. And, and this is because the Scripture tells us, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or Galatians 3 verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is anyone who hangs from the tree. Or Isaiah 53 verses 3 through 5, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely 
He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So this, this curse of God, the iniquities of our sin, the, the sin itself being put in him or on him or accounted to him, all of this coming at him, and the Lord can have nothing to do, God can have nothing to do with sin, so God himself removes his goodness from Christ at that moment for those hours that he was being punished on the cross for our sins. And some of you have probably suffered. You've suffered physical pain, our and, and our emotional pain. There's two types of pain, physical and emotional. And Christ was suffering both at this moment. I've talked to you about how they beat him, they slapped him across the face, they put the crown of thorns on his head, it pierced his skull, they whipped his back, and it lacerated his flesh, exposed his muscles, likely his internal organs. Then they nailed, they drove nails through his hands and through his feet, and they put him up on the cross, and his back would have chafed against the wood of the cross. All of the suffering, the, the, the pain, and that would produce emotional pain, and beyond that, the mocking and the thousands, could you imagine the thousands of people demanding that he be crucified? All of this happening in the course of a few hours. So the pain was real. Emotional and physical. And some of you have suffered emotional pain, some have physical pain, some have suffered both immensely. But in all of your pain, you can turn to God for comfort. Can you not? How many times have I exhorted this congregation? Turn to God for comfort. He's there to comfort his people. Moses himself, when his hands were failing, his arms were failing, he, there were God-appointed men to lift up his arms. Or Elijah, when he was worn out and he'd fled, God sent the ravens to minister to him. If you remember in Genesis 39, Joseph was falsely accused, wrongfully convicted, and thrown into an Egyptian dungeon. And two times we are told Genesis 39, verse 2, and Genesis 39, verse 23, that God was with Joseph in his affliction. God wasn't with Christ at this moment. In this way, if God was with him, it was the curse of God falling upon Christ. His comfort had withdrawn, is what I'm trying to tell you. There is no ministering comfort of God to care for our Savior as He was nailed to that cross and as He hung there in shame because the curse of God, the wrath of God had fallen upon Him and is such His comfort and His care had been removed in that way. So the Lord might have been with Joseph in that Egyptian dungeon, but there was no comfort available for Christ on that cross. The only presence of God that Christ experienced was the presence of God's hot anger towards sin and sinners and millions of sinners at once. The Apostles' Creed talks about how Christ descended into hell, and that's the language it uses. And Calvin commented on the creed, and Calvin said, Hence there is nothing strange in its being said 
that he descended to hell. Speaking of the creed. Seeing he endured the death which is inflicted on the wicked by an angry God. But after explaining what Christ endured in the sight of man, the creed appropriately adds the invisible and incomprehensible judgment which he endured before God to teach us that he bore in his souls in his soul the tortures of condemned and ruined men. The only presence of God in Christ at that moment was God's anger and wrath. There was no turning to God and receiving comfort at this time. For God had turned his face away from him. So we have Christ was judged. Christ was forsaken. There was a God-forsakenness that occurred. But in the midst of this, the, the true one of the greatest marvels of this story is, is my next point, which is that Christ had faith. This is marvelous. Despite the torture leading up to the cross, despite Judas's betrayal, the disciples fleeing, the Sanhedrin's show trial, the, the brutality, the false convictions, the mob of thousands of people demanding he be killed, the mocking, the shaming, the torture, the spitting, the raising him up on the cross in the place of the skull so that the sight and the smell of death was everywhere and God himself turning his back on Jesus Christ so that there was no comfort to avail, available to him and God. Despite all of this, verse 46 tells us that he said two times, my God, my God. You understand that these people were mocking him for his belief in God. If you really are the Savior, come down from the cross. Why isn't your God helping you? And as he's standing there, or, or start, sorry, nailed there with arms outstretched upon the cross, two times in this text he identifies with God and identifies that the God that they are mocking, the God that they are doubting, the seed of doubt that they're trying to put into his mind as Satan is hissing through their jeers. Two times he identifies that that God is his God the God that has turned his face on Christ and is offering no comfort in this moment, Christ himself will identify with that God in this hot trial. My God, my God. Do you see the faith? It's marvelous. And I think what's marvelous in the faith, of Christ, in the faith that Christ offers towards God here is, is the clarity and the lucidness of Christ. The level of class the strength of character, the resolve that is coming from this man who in Gethsemane fully yielded to God to do his father's business. And his focus is on his mission. His resolve is to drink the full cup of God's wrath undeterred. Even on the cross, he's the man that cannot be moved. His faith in God is unmarred. There is no doubting. There's no flinching. So you, you understand how difficult trials can be because you've been through trials, how difficult physical and emotional pain can be because you've been through seasons of physical and emotional pain, haven't you? I doubt you've endured anything quite like this. And you've certainly never been through a season where you cannot rely upon the comfort of God in that moment because God's face is turned away. And in this moment, this is... This is hopeful, this is instructive, and more than anything, this should well up in us 
a love and an admiration and a worship for Christ because he was undeterred and unflinching in his fully aware mind of his God in whom he had faith and the plan that God had for him. He wasn't being tossed to and fro like a snowflake in the wind. He was focused, and he couldn't be moved. He had great faith in God. And then with this faith and all of this cosmic realities going on and the spiritual realities going on and the heavens being darkened, what are the people still doing in this moment? But they're ridiculing him. He's ridiculed, point four. He was judged, he was forsaken, he had faith, and in all of this, he's ridiculed. They talk about missing the moment. All of history is climaxing at this moment, and they're ridiculing him. Verse 47, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, the man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. All of history climaxing at this sacred divine transaction. The atonement is taking place. The Son of God is suffering before their eyes. And the king of Israel is nailed to the cross. They've rejected their king. And the crowds are still lulled. Lulled in a coma of oblivion. Oblivious. Comatose to what's going on. So that their hearts are full of laughter at the death of Christ as they jeer and as they mock the one who bears the sin guilt of his people. Now, the reference here to Elijah is significant because Elijah was the, a very significant Old Testament prophet. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. John the Baptist was said to come in the spirit of Elijah. Elijah met Jesus with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. Elijah was carried away bodily so that he went to heaven in a body. And there was Jewish belief that he would return to help the suffering and Jesus had just cried out in the Aramaic, Eli, Eli, which translates, my God, my God, and the name Elijah means Jehovah is my God or Yahweh is my God. And so you hear the name of God in the name Elijah. And so this is a play on him calling out to God. He's cried out to God, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani. And so now they're making sport of his cry on the cross. Can you imagine? This glorious expression of the faith of Jesus Christ in the God of the universe, who's now punishing Christ on our behalf, this glorious expression of faith, what do these depraved minds do? But they flip and they make Christ's expression of faith into sport, into mockery, into jeering, into a few cheap jokes. Haha, <laughs> he's calling out for Elijah. Maybe Elijah will get him. Maybe Elijah will rescue him. And by the way, this is a commentary on our generation. People that make sport out of Christ, that make sport out of Christianity, and their hearts and their mouths are full of blasphemy. Meanwhile, they're standing under the very judgment of God at this moment as a sword hangs over their heads like a th on a thread that's fraying. And God could cut the thread any moment. And men and women stand around and they laugh and they jeer at the sincere faith of God's people who would believe things that seem to contradict their depraved way of thinking in this world. 
This is a commentary on any wicked generation. And it's a rebuke from people. It's a rebuke towards people who are too quick to tell jokes. There's, a, there's groups of people and there's individuals who their natural instinct is just to tell jokes and be unserious all the time. And I'm not opposed to joking. I'm not opposed to laughter. The Bible says laughter is good for the heart. But there is a time for clear-mindedness and thoughtfulness and seriousness. And this is a generation that, that is as unserious as it gets. Laughing as they stand under the judgment of God, trying to escape the harsh realities that they are in the hands of an angry God who has the sword of His judgment hanging over their heads on a thread that's fraying. And the only thing that's keeping there, that there is, their mercy, is His mercy. That's this generation too. Laughing away at Christ's sincere faith. Well, in verse 48, someone offered him a sour wine to drink, which was in a sponge. They put it on a stick and put the stick up in his face and offered him this to drink. This fulfills the prophecy of Psalm 69 verse, or sorry, Psalm 22 verse 15, which says, my strength is dried up. No, Psalm 69 verse 21, but Psalm 22 Verse 15 says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And then Psalm 69, verse 21 says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And apparently this sour wine, this vinegar, was a favorite drink of the lower classes and of the soldiers. Some say it, was, it quenched their thirst even better than water. I don't know if that's... <laughs> I don't know how you could say that, but anyway, they offered it to him. Why they offered it to him, we don't know, but they offered it to him. And as they're offering him this sour wine to drink in a sponge, and as the people are jeering at him as he hangs upon the cross, he takes one last breath and he dies. Christ dies. The last point is he dies. He's dead. Verse 50. Jesus cried out again and with a loud voice yielded up his spirit, or as the King James famously translates, gave up the ghost. Now last week I emphasized, as I preached my sermon, I emphasized the actors of the verbs, the ones who were the subjects of the verbs, were the wicked men, the soldiers, the bypassers, the men crucified on either side of Jesus. They were the ones doing the actions, and Jesus was the passive receiver of these actions. All of a sudden, Jesus is active again. It's like out of nowhere, he's active. And what does he do? He cries out again and yielded up his spirit, which almost pulls back the curtain and shows us he's been in control all along. This whole thing's been in his hand. That this has all been an act of his will. Everything he's had under his thumb. It looked like they were passing him from person to person, from soldier to soldier. It looked like he was the passive recipient of their actions. But he's been in control the whole moment, right up to the point of him being in control of his very moment of death because he realized, as the other Gospels tell us, 
that it is finished, the atonement's been made, it's done, and I think it's at this point that the lights came on again. This is, this is now the, the ninth hour strikes, and the lights are on again. Who gives up his spirit? Christ gives up his spirit. He's in control of the situation. It's not the Sanhedrin. It's not Pilate. It's not the soldiers. It's not the bypassers. It's not the other men crucified who are mocking him. He is the doer of the verb, the subject of the verb. And at this point, he drank down the last drag of the cup of the wrath of God. And his mission was accomplished. And he knew it was done. So he died by an act of his own will. He gave up his spirit. This is the moment he'd been born for. This was the mission that he was set on. This is what he was appointed to do. He was appointed to drink the full cup of God's wrath right down to the very dregs. He took the last gulp. He was knew it. He knew it, and he gave up his spirit because the mission was accomplished. And he, look, he was alert and lucid the whole time. So alert was he that he knew the very moment that your sins were atoned for, he could give up his spirit. He knew that his father's business had been perfectly carried out. And so he laid his head to rest and he entered paradise. Conscious and focused the entire time to the point of giving up the ghost as an act of his own will because he knew the job was done. We have full atonement made. Done. It's finished. Our sins are paid for. Done in that moment. Done. Finished. He did it. He got it done. He got her done. He got the job done. The anger of God is propitiated. Right there. Done. Finished. We have effective that moment in time. We who have faith have no guilt before God. Done. Full pardon. Done. Full forgiveness. Done. Clear record. Done. The promise of everlasting life. Done. All of it. It's just done right there. Done, 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 done. And he gives up the ghost. Finished. All by the work of Christ. Everything he'd been born to do was done. And thank God for that. I'll have prayer and a transition with a hymn to the Lord's Supper, and I have a few more things to say. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has accomplished this great salvation. All of him. And so we hold on to him by faith and believe fully in the one who saw his job through right to the very end and drank the last drag from the cup, the wine cup of your wrath on our behalf. We rest in him, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.